Welcome to Checking In. I'm Carolyn Kilstra, Self Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. Each episode, real people call in with real issues and questions they have about health and wellness. And I connect with experts, thought leaders, and others who've been there before to help them work through it. A heads up about this episode's content. We're going to be talking about eating disorders. So if that's something that might be triggering or upsetting to you, be sure to take care. Today, our listener Sarah wants advice on how to heal from an eating disorder. Eating disorders can be extremely isolating. As a Black woman, she's found it harder to find resources, maybe because there's a myth surrounding who these conditions actually affect. My name is Sarah. I am 45 years old, and I am from Ohio. I am a bulimic. I've been struggling with an eating disorder for anywhere from 12 to 15 years. But if you want to be honest about it, it's been a lifetime of back and forth, yo-yo dieting, restricting, fasting, being bullied, and struggling with body image issues. What does bulimia feel like? It is embarrassing. It's scary. It's empowering. It is a lot of things all at once. And with that being said, the healing process has been very difficult. And as I've done research on my own eating disorder, I have found that there is not a lot about the healing process. And in addition, it doesn't talk about certain demographic groups or anything like that. It's frustrating. It's taboo in the African-American community to say that you have an eating disorder. And for the record, Eating disorders are not skinny white girl diseases. It's not. You know, it's, it's important to know that. When you hear the words eating disorders, just imagine for a minute what do you see and what do you visualize. Dr. Erica Jarasa is a psychiatrist in Durham, North Carolina, and she specializes in treating eating disorders. Before I got into this work, what I saw was a white well-to-do, wealthy um, teenage girl, maybe a dancer or an athlete with anorexia nervosa. In nearly 10 years of treating patients, Dr. Jarasa has found that this misconception, the one that our listener Sarah mentions, is everywhere. The patient stories shared in this episode are composite narratives, which means that they may be a combination of a few different people's stories to protect people's identities. I could think of an individual um, that I just started seeing not too long ago who was referred to me. Um, She's in her 20s, a Black woman, young Black woman. She actually had just moved to the area. And she has a history of depression that she's been dealing with for many, many years through college and now after college. And her therapist referred her to me to determine whether or not medications would be appropriate. Upon further evaluation, I realized, oh my gosh, okay, not only does she have an eating disorder, um, but she has a pretty significant eating disorder, and it's been going on for so many years, and she never once told anyone in her family. She didn't know how to talk about what she was going through. I can't tell you how many individuals I've treated who are either Black or other, um, you know, Indigenous people of color who have told me... Black people don't get eating disorders, you know. Um, only only white people get eating disorders. And there can be a lot of stigma when we don't necessarily understand the data. That's been my experience in working with 
um, Black patients that I've I've served over the years, the the shame and the embarrassment and the guilt, because they again have been taught. Um, or just have learned over time that this is not something we deal with. This is not a Black issue. Why Why am I struggling with this? So the first barrier, I think, is overcoming that guilt and that shame and that embarrassment and really accepting the problem for what it is and understanding for those who are um, Black or other um, representing other ethnicities that we typically don't see in the eating disorder community or think about, that they, they are not alone. That stigma can be really dangerous. And I think it's important to know that for Black people and other Indigenous people of color, because they don't necessarily get treatment sooner, they suffer in silence for much longer periods of time, meaning that over that time, their eating disorder may actually get worse. Eating disorders are more harmful than people might think. They also present differently than people might think. Eating disorders out of all the psychiatric conditions, have the highest mortality rate. And if left untreated, they can really lead to not only significant psychological distress, which can lead to higher rates of suicidality and self-harm, but also can lead to really bad medical complications. And I have to do a lot of teaching when I'm meeting with individuals when first making a diagnosis, because I think a lot of times they don't, they just don't know um, all of the potential medical complications they can experience due to their eating disorder behaviors. Something that I've learned just from being a health editor is that the most common eating disorder is one that a lot of people probably have never even heard of. Yes, absolutely. And the most common is binge eating disorder. And that is characterized by eating excessive amounts of food in a short period of time, feeling out of control when eating. And it can be associated with significant feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment. Um, Typically, people who struggle with this eating disorder do so in secret. And um, they may binge at different times of the day, maybe when their family members are asleep. They may do it in their car, um, you know, in areas where they're private. And people can struggle with this for many, many years, and individuals would never even know it. And it tends to be actually most common in people of color, so in Black individuals and Latinos. um, It's actually highly prevalent. How do these misconceptions tend to get in the way of people getting the help that they need? It can lead to a lot of different barriers. Number one, um, being implicit bias. As I mentioned, being a physician and going into this work, I had my own biases about what eating disorders were, you know, the kind of people that were impacted. I had to check my own bias as a physician and my own misperceptions about what eating disorders are all about. And I think our um, other healthcare providers and therapists and clinicians need to do the same. In an ideal world where a person has actual access to treatment and care and a supportive community, what does the diagnosis and treatment process look like? The reality is that a lot of individuals start having disordered um, behaviors and engaging in those kinds of behaviors in adolescence or young adulthood. So it's really important for us to identify that early because the sooner we can get treatment on board, the better the outcomes. There's research showing that at the age of five or six, 
that kids may start having negative relationships with their bodies based on what they see in, in the news or on TV and magazines or their parents or at school. That means people can have negative ideas about their bodies they might not even be conscious of. So the first step is for your provider to help you understand how you feel about your body and to get specific. What negative thoughts or perceptions do you have about your body? And how do those thoughts show up in how you eat? So asking if they engage in restriction. Do they count calories? Do they go on fad diets? Do they um, just cut out certain food groups? Do they make judgments about food, label foods as good or bad or healthy or unhealthy? And also the opposite. Do they have times when they may engage in eating that they feel out of control, where it's so much food in a short period of time? Or maybe they have um, ways of compensating for what they see as overeating or binging. And that can be self-induced vomiting, that can be abusing laxatives or diuretics, or even engaging in excessive compulsive exercise. So these are the questions that we would want to ask individuals. And then if we feel as though they are at risk, then the next step is really referring them to a multidisciplinary team. Eating disorders are both medical and psychiatric conditions, so treatment can mean seeing several different providers. You might see a dietitian and a therapist, in addition to your primary care doctor. It's a matter of debate among clinicians what recovery even looks like for each patient. Recovery can take time, and depending on the type of eating disorder, it can be on the air of five to ten years. But I think it's important for us as providers to maintain that level of hope and to hold hope for our patients that recovery is absolutely possible. There are people who are thriving you know, with their eating disorder. And it, they may have some challenges and struggles still with body acceptance and um, triggers that they have to keep in check. Again, this is a chronic condition, but recovery is absolutely possible. It's also important to make sure that you have a few people who you could talk to about your eating disorder. Being vulnerable and transparent with them is crucial. I encourage all of my patients, I say, hey, I'm going to keep it real, doctor, and I want you to keep it real, too, because if I don't know what's really happening for you, I don't know how I can help you. So the accountability is where we can say, okay, you know, if you're struggling with restricting during the day and then binge eating at night, how can we help you provide more structure with your meals during the day? And how, how can we put some systems in place to keep you accountable and to keep you on track with that? So... The openness, the vulnerability, just being present and not being afraid of sharing what's really happening. And then I think the other tool in terms of recovery is trust. There has to be trust with your therapist or your doctor. Eating disorders are hard to treat because what you may see in yourself is often very different from reality. There can be what we call thought distortions. And eating disorders will feed lies all the time. You know, you're this, you're that, you're not good enough, you're not worthy of food, you're not deserving of food, or, you know, you're a terrible person because you're engaging in this binging behavior because you can't do this on your own. Lots of different thought distortions. And what's really important is that they can trust the team that can tell them, hey, those are lies. The eating disorder is lying to you. You don't have to give in to those thoughts. You don't have to give in to the distortions. You can trust your team knowing that we are doing everything in our power to help you to recover from this thing. 
And of course, all of this takes time. It's a process that can't be rushed. You need supportive doctors, but also often you need supportive people in your life outside of your medical care team. But it's not an overnight fix. It requires work. But again, it's up to us to hold on to that hope for our patients that recovery is possible, even when they're tired and even when they want to give up, that they don't have to give up. They can keep pushing. How often do people have access to this full scope of treatment? I would say very rarely, unfortunately. So um, at the beginning, I talked about how there are about 30 million individuals who at any given point in time may have an eating disorder. And research shows about 20% of those individuals may actually receive the resources and the treatment that they need. When we look at people of color, that number goes down tremendously. Black women, for instance, are 50% less likely to receive treatments for their eating disorders than their white counterparts. So we've talked about, in an ideal world, what eating disorder diagnosis or treatment or recovery would look like. What are some barriers that Black people and other people of color run into when seeking the help that they need? There are financial barriers at times. Um, Eating disorder treatment can be really, really expensive, especially because not all treatment centers or programs accept insurance or um, are covered by insurance. And um, it could be really difficult um, even finding treatment in certain areas because there are um, many individuals who may treat, you know, depressive disorders and anxiety disorders and mood disorders, but they may not even offer eating disorder treatment. But like we said before, if you don't have access to the most basic outpatient treatment Dr. Jarasa talked about, having a therapist, a dietitian, maybe even just a primary care provider, recovery can be even harder. Some of these individuals, because they're seeking treatment later, the severity of their illness may be greater. And because of that, may need higher levels of care, such as a partial hospitalization program or a residential program or um, even inpatient hospitalization. And that can be a barrier. Um, Just finding a program that is within that individual state, because sometimes those resources are very rare, depending on the state that you live in. And unfortunately, not all insurance companies cover um, these illnesses as, as much as they would cover other illnesses. When we think about treatment for communities of color, we also need to pay attention to factors that disproportionately affect them, like racial trauma and food insecurity. I could think of one young lady I, I worked with and she had a history of shuffling around the, the system, uh, staying with lots of different um, families, and ultimately she was hospitalized, but um, she was removed from her family's home because of neglect, and she would literally search for food. But then she would also, um, you know, in going from one family to another, she actually ended up staying with a foster family who then was even more abusive and um, would force feed her certain types of food. So by the time I saw her, um, she had a really, really um, tough eating disorder that we had to treat where she was restricting, but also engaging in in behaviors um, known as pica. Pica is a compulsive eating disorder. When you have it, you eat items that have little to no nutritional value, like hair, dirt, and paint chips. 
we had to be very creative in how to treat her eating disorder there in the hospital and also finding an appropriate, safe family for her to go and live with who could um, be equipped to handle all of her eating disorder behaviors, which as you can imagine, you know, being a foster family and not knowing anything about eating disorders, we had to um, identify a family who was even willing and had the capacity and the time to meet this child's needs. But we also had to bring them in to educate them and and to give them the skills and to help them um, learn how to um, really be there for her and, and to have that um, support for her during her meals and while showing her love and care, <laughs> which is what she needed. Unfortunately, people who are trying to help can often set somebody back. Can't tell you how many times I've heard family members tell their loved ones struggling with an eating disorder, well, just eat. <laughs> that's all you got to do is just eat. It's not that big of a deal. And it's like, oh, that's the worst thing you could say. This is, this is a brain condition. This is a psychiatric condition. A supportive community is crucial. After a quick break, Dr. Jarasa will share some tools for getting the support you need. Dr. Jarasa says your doctor can help give your loved ones tools to help you. In some cases, that means teaching them the right words to use. I've been in this work for well over 10 years, and it's always important to include the family, um, not only family, but maybe the friends, um, whatever that person's supportive network is. Even if they are a part of a really big um, religious or spiritual community, I've pulled in pastors, I've pulled in lots of different people into treatment because it really does require community. Um, for the accountability aspect, for the support, and also helping um, the family members and friends and loved ones to um, just utilize appropriate language, you know, um, being able to get rid of some of this pro-diet language that uh, we commonly see. It means re-educating your family, your close friends, and even your partner. You know, it may sound surprising, but there's so many individuals even who are in committed relationships where that partner may not be aware that this is even an issue for them and could be doing or saying things that are triggering without even being aware of it. What if you feel like you can't ask your family or your community for help? I can think of a young lady that I recently started working with who, again, was referred to me for treatment of depression. Um, but upon further uh, investigation, uh, come to find out she's actually been dealing with a raging eating disorder, um, specifically bulimia nervosa, uh, which is characterized by uh, restrictive behaviors in addition to binging and purging, mostly binging and purging. And she's been struggling in silence. And one of the things that she informed me was that her family, her parents are actually from Nigeria. So she's born here in the United States. But there are a lot of cultural norms that she's having to navigate. One being that in her culture, uh, her family really loves to celebrate with food. So part of her challenge has been not knowing how to even come out to her family um, about this. It would be hard because she'd have to confront their cultural expectations of her. She's a second-generation Nigerian-American, and they put extra pressure on her to excel and to look the part while doing it. 
She mentioned to me that for her, education is super important. Um, going into a good career is very important. So great. She was always high achieving, making all A's. But the other thing that was important is appearances. You know, just always looking your best, appearing your best, because the assumption was that is how people are going to determine um, whether or not you are worthy or not here in this United States culture environment. This idea of perfectionism can be paralyzing, especially for the children of immigrants. You know, you have to always be above and beyond. You know, you always have to work harder because you're Black, um, because you're going to be compared to other white students. So you have to always go above and beyond. You have to be perfect. And she internalized that to mean Everything had to be perfect. Her grades had to be perfect. Her appearance had to be perfect. I mean, when I first saw her on the camera on Zoom, because um, that's how we're we're doing evaluations these days in the midst of the pandemic, um, she had a full face of makeup on. Hair was perfectly done. Um, so for her, that body image and that perception that everything has to be um, just just right. Ultimately, this patient didn't involve her family in her treatment, but still found a way forward. And for now, we, as her treatment team, have become that family for her. We've become that support network, you know, um, between myself as her psychiatrist and she has a therapist. And we had to plug her in with a dietitian. It's being able to get her into a space where she does have people who she can be totally open and honest about her struggles with. And the goal eventually is to then extend that to her, her community and her support system. How helpful is it for people with eating disorders to form community with other people with eating disorders? I think it's very important for individuals with eating disorders to connect with other individuals who are committed to recovery. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet, on social media. There's a lot of diet culture, and believe it or not, a lot of pro-eating disorder culture. The terms pro-anorexia or pro-ana and pro-bulimia or pro-mia refer to content, usually online, that promotes the harmful behavior and mindset that forms part of some eating disorders. It's important to note that many of the people who post this content are living with eating disorders themselves. It's devastating. I mean, I, sometimes looking at that, it's just like, I can't even believe that stuff exists, but it's out there. So we really have to encourage folks to search for individuals who are also working towards their own recovery. So, you know, that supportive network of just knowing someone who may get it and who may understand can be really helpful. But what I've found is that sometimes, especially for um, people of color, for Black individuals or um, other genders, that sometimes that may not feel as welcoming if they don't necessarily see folks who look like them. So I think sometimes that can be a challenge is how do we even find other individuals who, who look like me, um, who are struggling like me, um, that can be very isolating. So that's something I would um, say is a barrier as well. You know, how, how do you find folks who you're like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm here, but I don't know that I, you know, they, they necessarily get some of the cultural aspects of, of what may get in the way of um, me getting the support that I need. But these support groups do exist. More and more, Black and Brown activists have created spaces to honor who you are and how that can inform how you recover. The idea is to help people of color navigate the nuances of having an eating disorder. We'll link to some of those groups and the resources in our show notes. 
These groups have been heartening for Dr. Jarasa to see in her last 10 years of practice. If we can break down stigma and talk more about the impact of eating disorders and the fact that, again, eating disorders impact all races, all genders, all ethnicities, that we as providers will do a better job of diagnosing eating disorders among our patients, that we'll look for them, and that we'll be able to actually give our patients the treatment that they they need and deserve, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their race or ethnicity or gender. We're really trying to get the word out there that, hey, eating disorders exist and they impact a ton of Americans and lead to really, really devastating complications, ultimately can lead to death or completed suicide. So let's get the word out there. Let's talk about these barriers. Let's address the barriers so that we are getting individuals the appropriate treatment that they need and deserve. She also had some last words for Sarah. There was one word that really stood out to me by the caller, Sarah. Um, you know, she she mentioned a lot of negative emotions that come up when she thinks about having an eating disorder. But there was one word that stood out to me, and she said that it can also be empowering. And that word stood out to me because I do believe that healing is possible. And when individuals are able to see that healing is possible and feel empowered to take the steps towards their own recovery, where they have a sense of agency over their lives, um, that can be such a beautiful, beautiful thing to see as a doctor. And that's that's kind of why I live for this. It's, you know, to be able to see individuals um, who get through it on the other side and say, okay, I'm no longer controlled by this eating disorder. Take that leap of faith and that leap of courage and bravery And it's okay to tell someone that you're struggling. You don't have to do this alone because there is help out there for you. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story with Self. We hope that this brings you some comfort and helps you find more healing in your recovery. Make sure you check out the show notes for more information on Dr. Jarasa, links for support groups and organizations that can also be part of the recovery team you deserve. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine. And follow me, I'm at Carolyn Kilstra. On our audio team, supervising producer is Odelia Rubin. Lead producer is Haley Fager. Executive producer is Shara Morris. Producer is Phoebe Unterman. Associate producers are Andrea Batanzos and Kate Mishkin. And sound engineer is Scott Somerville. This episode was edited by Catherine St. Louis. On the self team, the editorial lead is Sarah Yalowitz. Digital director is Amy Isinger. Researchers are Amy Martrana Windrill and Colleen de Belfond. And production manager is Nico Steele. The theme music is by Biscuit and Butta, courtesy of Plays Unlimited LLC. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>